Hey everyone, grace and peace to you. My name's Evan Wickham, and I'm one of the pastors here at Park Hill Church, and you are in for a treat. What you're about to hear is a lecture from Dr. Brian Loritz, followed by a Q&A session. So, this all happened on Sunday night, February 26th, at Park Hill Church at our House of Learning. What is House of Learning? Once a month, we focus on one key issue that's important to us and to our culture, and we look at it through the lens of the gospel and through the scriptures. And we ask, how, how does Jesus want us to think like Christians about this issue? And for February, with it being Black History Month and with Brian Loritz with us, uh, we just wanted to talk about ethnic unity. And Brian Loritz brought it. So in this lecture, he talks about CRT or critical race theory. What is it? Is it helpful, unhelpful, or both or neither? And affirmative action, reparations, white privilege, and, and most importantly, how to think like Christians about these things. Not, about, not, not how to think like Republicans or Democrats or whatever, but how to think first and foremost like followers of Jesus, citizens of God's kingdom in the world. And that's what this lecture is about, and, and I just want to say, it, Dr. Loritz pulls no punches. Um, his sermon from Sunday morning was great, but that was like one for the masses. This one is for the listener and the learner. And as a, as a white evangelical pastor that I am, I found myself listening hard to the truths that Dr. Loritz laid down in this lecture and in the Q&A session. So, I hope you enjoy it. I hope it sparks all the right questions. It is so good, you guys. So good. And so, I invite you to just kind of settle in and relax and um, pay close attention and invite the Holy Spirit to guide you as you listen to Dr. Brian Loritz on race, ethnic unity, and the gospel. Enjoy. There is, of course, no need to rehash the events of 2020, but to say that if you were to tell me at the end of 2019, there would be a worldwide pandemic totally altering the way we navigate life, leading us to quarantine for years and causing global economic chaos. And yet in the middle of all this, there would be a several month stretch where no one would be talking about the pandemic because of the video documented killing of a black man who had a white police officer's knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, uh, you would have won a lot of bets. George Floyd's killing was but one in a tragic succession of black people being killed this year, or excuse me, in 2020 by whites, many of them cops. It began with Ahmaud Arbery, then Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, uh, and Jacob Blake. These events have thrust us into the epicenter of what's been termed as our neo-civil rights movement. This is our moment. I've labeled my presentation this evening, Critical Race Theory, A, and then in parentheses, un, uh, close parentheses, necessary distraction, because I see critical race theory as both. On the one hand, critical race theory is a very necessary conversation that needs to be had. In recent years, critical race theory has really caught the attention of theologians and much has been written about the subject. In one article on critical race theory, which I would commend to you, 
uh, African-American gentleman by the name of Rasool, R-A-S-O-O-L, Barry, illumined a much needed premise and that is critical race theory, keyword, is nuanced. Having good and bad things about it. As usual, far too many Christians bypass the nuance and settle into their polarizing positions. By the way, always be very leery, uh, very leery of people who don't allow for nuance. But while I think critical race theory is a necessary conversation, I sure wouldn't be talking about it um, here tonight if I didn't think so, I am fearful and saddened that we have allowed it to become an unnecessary distraction. Jesus' indictments on the religious leaders of his day for being content to get into fine theological arguments while neglecting the weightier matters of the law like justice is a telling indictment on us today. My fear is that some of the loudest voices for or against critical race theory have muted those same voices when it comes to doing the work of justice in this current milieu. These things are important to remember as we make our way through this talk. My aim this evening is to to define critical race theory and unpack some of its major, some of its major tributaries like systemic injustice, affirmative action, white privilege, and reparations. That's right, we're going to talk about all these things tonight. But before we go there, let's play a little Monopoly. Talked about it this morning. So my great-grandfather, true story, was a slave. My last name, Loritz, uh, is German. Um, uh, My great-grandfather worked the plantations um, there in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, And the family that owned us were a family of German Reformed pastors who led their enslaved property to faith in Jesus. Wow. Let's imagine uh, my great-grandfather, whose name was Peter, uh, sits down um, with, let's say, a white individual who's here this evening with uh, your great-grandfather, and they say, let's play the game of Monopoly. And so the Monopoly's played, and my great-grandfather tries to pass go, says, where's my $200? And you say, are you out of your mind? You're not getting $200. You punch him in the face. No money. You're never allowed to own any property. That's how the game is played. It's played that way for, gosh, a couple centuries. They die, and let's say our grandparents now. My grandfather, uh, he was, my grandfather was a... Um, uh, a major league baseball player, but because he was black, he couldn't go to the major leagues, play the Negro Leagues, true story. Um, which, by the way, it doesn't get talked about enough. The major leagues were wrestling with um, uh, the way that they had sinned. They wouldn't use the word sin, but the way that they had sinned against black people. And so what major league baseball did was, if you could prove uh, that you were a Negro League baseball player and that you played four or five years in the Negro Leagues, they gave you their, your full pension. Unbelievable. So imagine my grandfather now sits down to play with a white individual's grandfather. They pick up with a game left off in Monopoly. It's during Jim Crow. 
My grandfather now passes go, and you say, hey, man, here's your 200. I'll even let you buy property. The purple or the light blue, nothing else. Don't think about Broadway. Don't think about Park Place. This is your little lane. We're going to redline it. That's how the game's played for years. They die, and now you and I sit down. It's 2023. And you sit down and say to me, hey man, Brian, I'm so sorry. My ancestors have really wronged you. It's all fair now. Buy anywhere you want. While I appreciate the sentiment, the problem is it's not fair. For centuries, your side has had an unfair economic advantage accruing wealth, while my side has barely made it. And now with the passing of a few laws, you say it's all equal. So what do we do about this? This is the question critical race theory has tried to answer. Critical race theory, um, in a lot of ways, had begun in the 1970s when legal scholars noticed that the advances of the civil rights era had stalled, and even in some cases had been rolled back. These legal scholars had to have been frustrated that that 1970s show, The Jeffersons, I didn't think y'all would remember that. A show profiling a well-to-do black family. By the way, Aretha Franklin saying, we'd have moved on up to the east side, still nothing. Had represented a minuscule minority, outliers even, in that black people were not realizing Martin Luther King's dream. So they began to come up with legal strategies to remedy the problem. In 1989, they held their first ever workshop retreat more or less in Madison, uh, Wisconsin. Major intellectual figures such as Derrick Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado not only joined the workshop, but were major leaders in what we today know as critical race theory. Today it's no longer, critical race theory is no longer confined to the legal realm but is discussed in most academic departments like English, sociology, political science, history, anthropology. Uh, we've heard it in recent years in reference to the 1619 Project, which is seeking to give a fuller account of history, including um, in substance the narrative of slavery. Former President Trump even vowed to defund any school system using this, saying it is a part of critical race theory. Now, some of you are thinking, what exactly is critical race theory? That's the problem. Let me tell you how I'm going to use it this evening. In its most simplistic terms, I'm using critical race theory to describe, this is beyond simplistic, to describe a person who sees the world in an oppressed oppressor binary. It's an oversimplification. But if you are white, you represent to many in the CRT camp, the oppressor, the villain. If you are black or a woman, person of color, 
or part of the LGBTQ plus community. You are the oppressed and virtue is ascribed to you. And of course, we can get into concepts of, here's the word you've heard, intersectionality, where more virtue is given to people who represent multiple categories of oppression. Like, okay, you, you check one box if you're a black man, you, you check two boxes if you're a black woman, you check three boxes of oppression if you are a black gay woman, the more boxes of oppression you check, the more virtuous you are. That's intersectionality. A critical race theorists tends to blame a lot of things on white privilege or white fragility, while at the same time seeing themselves held back from their destiny by the man or the oppressor whites. On the other hand, those who are white and against critical race theory often see the world solely through individual terms. There is no systemic racism, they argue. And if people just worked harder, you know, pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, then they could make it, they argue. A critical race theorist would respond by saying the system has not given them boots. By the way, theologically speaking, James Cone and the liberation theologians were, were CRT before there was a CRT. Just read Cone's book, God of the Oppressed, and his argument that God is only for the oppressed. Because of these things, critical race theory has become for many a modern curse word. If you believe in white privilege, you can very well be labeled CRT. If you affirm the concept of white fragility, you can count on being put in the CRT box. If you argue for reparations, believe in the idea of communal or generational culpability, you will be called a critical race theorist. If you stand up for affirmative action, you will be branded CRT. Boy, this is so challenging. If you're a Christian, how are we to think and navigate critical race theory? How, how are we to think Christianly about this? Fasten your seatbelts. Reading the Bible, there's no doubt that there are plenty of seasons in the life of Israel and the followers of Jesus where there were clear cases of oppressed and oppressor. Israel in bondage to Egypt. Israel in the season of the Babylonian captivity. The people of God in Assyria, see Jonah. Christianity suffering oppression under Rome and Nero. What's more, we see instances of, <laughs> golly, in the Bible we see instances of structural or systemic injustice, reparations and affirmative action. Yes, it's all in there, folks. Hold on, I'm going to show you. So is God on the side of critical race theory? But on the other hand, we don't see God demonizing oppressors, but calling his people to even love their oppressors. He sends Jonah, a Jew, to bring the message of salvation to the most vicious, oppressive people in the world at the time, the Assyrians who came up with, with crucifixion. God saves them. Jonah gets mad. And then God declares his love for them. We see God telling Israel, while in Babylon, while in Babylon, seek the welfare of Babylon. 
where I have sent you. Or consider the life and teachings of Jesus. The Jews got mad at Jesus because he refused to see the world through the lens of critical race theory. They wanted a political Messiah who would fight for the oppressed Jews against the evil oppressor Romans. Instead, they got a Messiah who told them to love their enemies, pay taxes to Caesar, and die on the cross for the likes of the Roman centurions. Even more so, God is clear that the sons are not to be held accountable for the sins of their fathers or previous generations. So is God against reparations? See, here's what is beyond clear. God and the Bible are extremely nuanced when it comes to the issue of critical race theory. And it is this nuance or mystery that I want us to embrace. But there are some things we can be really clear on and walk with hope. So let's dive in. Let's begin with white privilege. (laughs) Critical race theory has a lot to say about race, racism, and power. Given these broad and important categories, you must see critical race theory as a junk drawer that has several things thrown in. One of these items is white privilege. Now, before we can understand white privilege, we must understand race. In America, race is a social construct never to be confused with ethnicity. I'll give that to you again. 757 just drove by. In America, race is a social construct never to be confused with ethnicity. Race is used more times than not in this country, not biologically, but sociologically. People kill me when they say, Brian, there's only one race, the human race. You're talking biology. We agree with that. That's not how race is used in the United States, more times than not. It's used as a social construct, never to be confused with ethnicity. So sociologically, it's used sociologically to speak of a system where we extend or extract value from a person solely based on the color of their skin. In other words, blackness or whiteness by themselves mean nothing. I love what one Nigerian writer said. She writes, in Africa, there are no black people. It was only when I came to America that I realized I was black. Blackness and whiteness only have meaning in America in relation to the other in this demonic system of race. Think about that for a moment. There was a time in our nation's history when it meant nothing to be Irish or Italian. But over time, those ethnicities assimilated solely into the American category of whiteness. And to be white in America is to be afforded privilege. The system has historically been set up and slanted towards whites. Jefferson Davis once said to the U.S. Senate, this government was not founded by Negroes nor for Negroes, but by white men for white men. The inequality of the white and black races was stamped from the beginning. In a recent study, it was revealed that the average white family has a net worth 10 times greater than the average black family. White privilege in America today means you are less likely to be killed or harassed by police. 
It means you don't have to deal with the daily toll of race. You can sit and watch television biased towards you. You can sit in history classes that emphasize your narrative. And you can be colorblind. White privilege means that if your white child goes missing, recent studies say you can count on an extraordinary longer period of time allocated by the media to them than if that child was black or brown. My wife, as I shared with you this morning, is half Mexican, half Irish. You really can't tell what she is. I remember looking for a, an apartment some years ago um, in Pasadena. It's kind of a sore spot. We're coming up on 24 years of marriage, and this is about 24 and a half years ago. It's still a sore spot. Because I found this steal of a deal in Pasadena. And I was like, well, you just move into my apartment once we get married. No, it's not our place. We need our place. <laughs> Cost me an additional 600 bucks a month. I, I'm not sore about that. <laughs> so we're looking for this apartment. I saw the perfect spot in a little community in California, Pasadena. I asked the elderly white landlady how much she wanted for a security de deposit. She looked me up and down and told me she needed six months in advance. This is California. I thought that was strange, but didn't want to jump the gun. So I sent my white looking wife to talk to her about the same apartment. This same lady told her, oh, just give me first and last months. Corey was afforded a privilege because she looked a certain way that I was denied. This is what we're getting at when we talk about white privilege. But how are we to think of white privilege as Christians? Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is so key here. You may find it strange that I actually don't like the phrase white privilege. I hate it. Because it demonizes privilege for the sake of privilege, and that's wrong. If privilege was sinful, then Jesus was sinful. No one was more privileged than our Lord and Savior, a point Philippians 2 makes. The text says that though Jesus was God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Instead, Jesus humbled himself. In other words, in a stunning picture, Paul tells us that Jesus, hear it now, stewarded his divine privilege for our benefit. So the Bible would say several things to white people. One, don't put your identity in your whiteness. And as recipients of privilege, don't feel bad about your privilege so long as you are stewarding it well. What does that mean? To steward privilege in the way Jesus did is to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others. Because Jesus used his privilege to suffer and die on a cross so that we spiritually underprivileged might have life everlasting. Let's go to systemic racism. I'm, I'm all the way in it, so we might as well keep going. A major conversation piece today is this whole idea of systemic racism brought to light by the murder especially of our brother George Floyd, former President Trump, um, and a member of his cabinet at the time, William Barr, who was the head of the Justice Department, 
um, were hesitant at the least about this concept of systemic racism, if not outright denying it. William Barr did as much when he was asked if there were two justice systems in America. He said flat out no. This line of thinking is actually congruent with white evangelicals. You should read the book, Divided by Faith. In their seminal book, Divided by Faith, white sociologists, Emerson and Smith, say that white evangelicals see sin in personal terms and not systemic ones. Therefore, the white evangelical approach is to focus on the heart through evangelism and discipleship a kind of discipleship that doesn't deal with tangible justice. What are we to make of this? Again, I want us to think Christianly. The Bible gives many examples of systemic injustice. So I, I, I need to, if I'm struggling with, does this thing even exist? Let me go to the scriptures. This makes sense because if we are all sinners and you get a group of sinners to build systems, those systems will inherently be tainted with sin. In Exodus, we see Pharaoh instituting a system of injustice when he legislates that the midwives kill the Jewish baby boys. It's a system. Centuries later. King Herod would institute the same system in his attempt to kill the Messiah. I mean, just think of that. If you're a mother in ancient Egypt or Palestine when these edicts are mandated, what are you to do? You are facing not so much an individual, but a whole system that has been commanded to kill your child. Or take the book of Amos. In the book of Amos, God chastises his people for having unbalanced scales and defrauding the poor. What do we call this? It's an unjust system. My favorite is Luke 19. Luke 19, we see Zacchaeus, who is described not just as the tax collector, but as a chief tax collector, meaning he is overseeing an unjust system based on fraud and extortion. You got it? Tax collectors made their living off of defrauding people, but he's not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector, which means he's got this pyramid scheme He's established a system. As one scholar says, he's the head of the Jericho cartel. <laughs> Jesus' cleansing of the temple is dealing with an unjust system that is not only based on a dishonest commercialization of the temple, but has overtones of racism. We talked about it this morning because it is set up by these Jews in the only place where Gentiles could worship the court of the Gentiles on and on we could go. Hmm. But what about in America? Does systemic injustice exist here? Of course. Obviously, we see it in slavery. Jim Crow was also a whole system of injustice where blacks were largely denied the right to vote through the system, were forced to go to substandard schools, sit in the back of buses, denied tons of other privileges. There's even a book called The Green Book. Look it up which was solely written to help blacks navigate systemic injustice on road trips while keeping their humanity intact. During this period, you had things like convict leasing. Read the book Slavery by Another Name. What is convict leasing? 
streets where a black person could be arrested for jaywalking, charged a steep fine, knowing he didn't have it, he'd be sent to work in labor camps until he paid off his debt, something that would rarely happen given the exorbitant interest rates that were attached to his bogus fine. Then there's housing. In the book, The Color of Law, read that one, it lays open the collusion that took place between the government, real estate agents, lending companies, and communities to keep black and brown people out. This process has been described as reverse redlining. Systemic injustice in housing continues today, most clearly seen in companies like Wells Fargo being found guilty for targeting poor black and brown families and giving them loans they knew they could never pay. The devastation that was inflicted on these black and brown communities right in the aftermath of the 2008 or, uh, financial crisis was so extensive it led many cities to even sue the banks for these unjust loans and in many cases the plaintiffs won. Systemic injustice is seen in the case of Colin Kaepernick in the NFL, which settled with him over the issue of colluding to keep him out given his very public stance or knee on racism. Also, there's the Christian school bit in the South, where white Christians upset about forced integration brought about because of Brown versus Board of Education decided to start their own schools and price out black and brown people in order to avoid integration. What do we call that? Just personal sin? All of this and more is but a sampling of systemic racism. So how do we deal with this? Ah, let's talk about reparations. Let's open this can of worms up. I'm in it now, so let's just be all the way in it. It's hard to argue reparations biblically. The Bible speaks more to restitution than it does reparations. Reparations, at least the way I'm using it, is more governmental in focus. While restitution, as the Bible has it, is more individual. The concept of restitution is seen in several places in the Bible. For example, in regards to a person who has wronged another, God says in Numbers chapter 5, verse 7, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. Notice that not only does he have to pay back materially, but he has to add interest to it. This is telling. Because restitution is so much more than giving back what was taken, it is more so about acknowledging that if I had not taken what I did, you would have been further down the road, thus the interest. Now, I do think we do see a place for governmental reparations in the Bible. Exodus 12. Here the nation of Israel had been in slavery for over 400 years. Sound familiar? It's finally time to leave. 
But God doesn't want them to go empty handed. Look at what happens. Read it for yourself. Exodus 12, 35 to 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they left them what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now this wasn't something Egypt voted on in an effort to right the wrongs. How did this happen? It was done person to person. And God gave them favor. But the point is clear. After centuries of slavery, God didn't want them to go from bondage into freedom empty-handed. What's more is the New Testament. Is there reparations in the New Testament? The closest text in the New Testament on reparations is Luke 19. Back to, back to Zacchaeus. I grew up in the church, so we learned a little song about Zacchaeus, how he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. The story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, who, as we just said, that's a story over a system of injustice. Well, Jesus invites himself over to his home, and Zacchaeus says, I love this. You know what, Jesus? I've wronged a lot of people. <laughs> and saying I'm sorry isn't good enough. So up to half my goods I'll give to the poor, and those who I have defrauded, I will restore it back to them fourfold. Jesus responds by saying, today, salvation has come to your house. In other words... Jesus is pointing out that restitution is a gospel indicator light authenticating his salvation. He's not saved because he gives money to people he's wronged. But the acknowledgement, the attachment of repentance to confession... I know, I know, Zacchaeus is not paying back for things his ancestors did. He's seeking to materially right his wrongs. But nonetheless, the spirit of the New Testament is to always go above and beyond the law. The spirit of the New Testament is never what can I get away with or what is the bare minimum. But what leaps should I take to right the wrongs. So for anyone to look at the plight of African Americans historically and merely shrug their shoulders and say, not my problem, is a person who just doesn't get the spirit of the Gospels in the New Testament. While I believe the Bible gives us a framework for thinking through reparations, I think the best case best case for reparations is actually in our Constitution and our nation's history. We are told in the Constitution, America's Constitution, that one of our inalienable rights is the pursuit of happiness. People of color have been denied this for so long that we have settled for 
just being people who matter. <laughs> like me saying, I matter, like black lives matter. That's controversial. I haven't even got to happy. It's safe to say that for so many people of color, we have been denied the pursuit of happiness since day one in this country. So I'm not giving you Bible. I'm just saying, just do what you said, which is our constitutional right. We can call history to bear witness that the people of color should have reparations. When I lived in the Bay Area, I was shocked to discover that the Fillmore, known at one time as the Harlem of the West, for all of its African-American residents was originally, the Fillmore, Harlem of of the West, was originally a Japanese community in San Francisco. Shortly after Pearl Harbor was bombed, Asian hysteria flooded the country. And ultimately, over 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry were pulled from their homes and sent into internment camps. Many of those people were taken from their homes in the Fillmore. Now the question happens, what happened to their homes? The Fillmore was vacated and the government gave formerly Japanese homes to the rising population of African-Americans. Just gave it to them. Some years later, our country acknowledged our wrong and paid out $1.6 billion in reparations to our Japanese siblings. As they should have. In 1946, our government established the Indian Claims Commission to hear grievances from Native Americans over lost territories seized by our our government. Ultimately, $1.3 billion was awarded to tribes and bands. Yet for some reason, when blacks talk about reparations, it's controversial. It shouldn't be for many reasons. The primary one being our government actually began the process of reparations with blacks. As the Civil War was ending, Union generals were having a conversation with the African-American community in Savannah, Georgia. Coming out of that discussion, it was decided to take the over 400,000 acres of land seized from the Confederates and give it out in 40-acre allotments. This became known as 40 acres in a mule. This was a stunning act way ahead of its time. Sadly, Not long after this order, President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, overturned the order and returned the land back to its original treasonous owners. So the ones who rebelled, who had wronged and defrauded us, You started to give us that land. Then you turned it back to them. Just think of the power and healing that could have come had we stuck to this reparations plan. 
Okay, thanks for the history lesson. I've tried to make a case. We catch glimpses of it in the Bible. I think the stronger case is historically. What do I do with this? What does it mean to think and behave Christianly when it comes to reparations? Let me look at this two sides of the table. As an African-American follower of Jesus, the gospel would say that I should not depend on reparations for me to forgive you. If God says in the law that sons are not to pay for the sins of their father, then I should not let what your ancestors did to my people hinder me from coming to the table in true reconciliation with you. Tim Keller has a great line in his recent book on forgiveness. He says, when we seek justice without first doing the work of forgiveness, we end up acquiring vengeance. But on the other side of the table, the gospel would push you in different ways. At least it should. It should push you to say, Whatever it takes to right the wrongs, I'm up for it. Yeah, but what does this mean? Let me give you two examples. I have a white, Jesus-loving friend of mine who has done well in business. Okay, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He began to look around at all the racial turmoil and then at himself and felt as if white privilege had caused him to advance as far as he had in our society. Moved by this and the plight of African Americans, he decided to set up a reparations fund where he was donated, where he has donated a lot of money. And he is, he's inviting his white friends to contribute as well. This is not forced. Simply if you want to give. The fund is made up of many causes that will directly benefit the African-American community, one of which being the United Negro College Fund. He's asked me and other black pastors to help him think through this fund. I think Jesus would say, today salvation has come to your home. I have another wealthy friend of mine. I promise you not all of my white friends are wealthy. His grandfather started a very well-known hotel chain, you know it, as Holiday Inn. We were playing golf uh, together one day and he, he said he was troubled because for years in the early days of Holiday Inn, blacks could not stay at these hotels. Now he's living off of his grandfather's money while trying to push the business forward. He has an angst. What am I to do? He has decided to focus much of his real estate efforts today in impoverished communities, helping poor black and brown people get affordable housing, along with developing business which would benefit them directly. I've actually seen him build homes in impoverished communities to increase the value, help single black and brown moms 
get good credit, and then him give them as close to a 0% loan as possible. I think too, Jesus would say to him, today, salvation has come to your home. Finally, let's look at affirmative action. Again, we must remember that critical race theory began in the legal legal realm out of frustration that African-Americans and brown people were not experiencing the promises gained during the civil rights movement. One of the ways they sought to remedy the problem was by getting people of color, of people of color not getting their fair share of opportunities when it came to colleges, universities, and the marketplace was to fight for what we would today call affirmative action, which is intentionally targeting underrepresented people for consideration when it comes to admission into schools and jobs. The NFL employs this method, albeit poorly, with their highly publicized Rooney Rule, requiring teams to interview candidates of color whenever there is a coaching vacancy. Now, of course, affirmative action has been controversial, accompanied by cries of not fair, by our white siblings. This is interesting because the subtle message is white innocence. When a person doesn't see themselves as white, they don't see see themselves as being a part of an unfair system. And for sure, if they don't see the notion of systemic injustice, they will not be pleased with affirmative action. So a few things need to be said about this. First, affirmative action is not the brainchild of critical race theorists, nor is it birthed out of a group of frustrated minorities. Very important. If by affirmative action you mean targeting a specific group for opportunities, then we must come to grips with a very hard truth. Whites have been doing this since our nation's inception. Tell me, what kind of person could only be president in 1865? Or what kind of person could only vote in 1932? Or what kind of person could only play in the major leagues in 1909? If you guess whites, tell them what they want, Alex. (laughs) That sounds like affirmative action to me. I want you to imagine you're playing in a football game the whole first half, you, you notice the other team is getting all the calls. The referees are cheating you and your team. They are making stuff uh, uh, to blow. They're making up stuff to blow the whistle. They are calling holding on people not holding, pass interference on run plays. I mean, it's just embarrassing. Meanwhile, thanks to the unfairness of the referees, the other team is beating you fifty to nothing at halftime. Finally, the referees come into your locker room at the half and say, "Hey, mm, we are sorry." We've been cheating you, and we are wrong. Will you forgive us? We won't do it anymore. Promise. We will call it fair in the second half, okay? You're like, sure, one little problem. We're down 50 to nothing. I'm sorry, it's not good enough. Now, how are we going to ensure a fair game? You'll have to slant things to the other side for a while. Not fair, but neither was the first half. That's what affirmative action is trying to do. 
So how are we as Christians to think about affirmative action? Again, I want us to think Christianly. Filter your sociology through your theology. Well, this is probably the most controversial thing that I'll say to you in this lecture. What I've just described to you is the doctrine of election. (laughs) The doctrine of election says that we were all enslaved to a system called sin. Sin has not just colored our actions, but our affections and our hearts as well. Sin colors all of who we are. If sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. Now, the effect of this was to completely render us helpless and hopeless, unable to get to heaven and God on our own. Seeing us in our helpless condition, God came down and put on skin, walked with us, preached to us, and ultimately died for us, raising again the third day according to the scriptures. And while Jesus died for the world, the doctrine of election says he has chosen some. We were chosen not because we were good little boys and girls. We were chosen not because of the letters behind our name or how smart we were or what zip code we lived in or what we did for the poor, the ethnically other. We were chosen solely by the grace of God. Just like affirmative action gives opportunities they would not have gotten otherwise, election gives us an opportunity we would not have gotten otherwise. We're all familiar with the ugliness of apartheid and the havoc it wreaked on South Africa. We're also familiar with the country seeking to move forward into healing through an astounding act of gatherings called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. By the way, if you've never read Bishop Desmond Tutu's Pulitzer Prize winning book, No Future Without Forgiveness, you you must read it. These gatherings were opportunities for whites to confess their atrocities exacted upon their black victims who would be there and to ask for forgiveness. In one such gathering, a white cop stood before a few hundred people, pointed to a black woman and said, during apartheid, me and a few other white cops came to this woman's house, took her husband, bound him with ropes, doused him with gasoline, lit a match, set him on fire, and made this woman watch as her husband screamed to his death. A few months later, we returned, took her son, bound him with ropes, doused him with gasoline, lit a match, set him on fire, and made this woman watch as her son screamed to his death. These are my sins. And I'm deeply ashamed and I ask for forgiveness. The crowd was hushed. What would this woman do? Gathering her strength, this woman stood and said, Sir, you have taken from me my husband, the love of my life. You have killed my only child. You have wronged me and are in my debt. I I am a relatively young woman with a lot of love to give. And I ask you that if you would be so kind, would you come to my home in Soweto once a week and let me cook for you? When you come, will you bring me your laundry and allow me to clean for you? Sir, I forgive you. The crowd was still hushed. Finally, a group of teenage boys began singing the old song written by that slave trader, John Newton, Amazing Grace. Bishop Tutu sums it up in his award-winning book, No Future Without Forgiveness, as he seeks to articulate the powerful South African concept of Ubuntu. He says, when we say another person has Ubuntu, we are saying my humanity is caught up, is inextricably bound in yours. A person is a person through other persons. This is not to say there is no place for justice, but it is to say we need each other. Tutu would have the audacity to say that Ubuntu means that I am incomplete. Something is missing in my humanity without others, even my offender. 
A failure to forgive, Mbutu suggests, actually dehumanizes the offended in the same way that the offender through their offenses acted in a less than fully human way. All of this points to the cross. Through our sins, we have offended a holy God. God, the offended, extends forgiveness, draws us into reconciliation with him. Now we are more alive than we have ever been through the forgiveness of Christ. And yet the cross at the same time not only extends forgiveness, but has satisfied God's requirement for justice. The cross is the place where forgiveness and justice collide. Jesus' death has satisfied the wrath of God. This is the glorious doctrine of propitiation. And so our new humanity together brings black, brown, white, yellow, Chinese, Japanese, Germans, Jews, and so many others together. Just like the lying lion lying down with the lamb stuns the world. So we, this new community, through our new paradigm of relationships, will shock the world. May we do justice and seek forgiveness as an extension the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So we're going to get into Q&A right now. Man, Brian, thank you so much. What an impartation. Just a, so, uh, yeah. So I, one thing I, I have very little fear about with with Q&A especially when the topic is is so embodied and so dear to many of our experience uh, the the temptation from many in a Q&A situation is to forget that Q&A is ultimately like pastoral care and uh, and I and this is like having known Brian for a short time and experienced him in person a few times that's like the least of my like like it's going to be so powerful what you're what you've already experienced what you're about to experience I'm just so grateful that you're here Brian pastorally caring for us and um you're just a gift your wisdom and what, what you did in the last hour it's un, unreal what you did like David Wade he's David Wade is uh, one of our embedded church planners, and he, he runs the uh, Race and Belonging cohort, many of whom are here. Yeah, Race and Belonging, let's go. And, and he's like, okay, so he, he just said a minute ago, Brian just distilled a year of RBC into an hour. That was very, very good. So um, very, very wonderful. And David, you... You came up with a few questions based on your reading of, of Luritz's book, Insider Outsider, and then you ran it through the RBC filter, uh, the grid, and you, you, you talked through these questions, and they're excellent, and I'd love to just kind of get the ball rolling with a couple questions David's bringing to the table. Um, it's a lot of it's based on the book, a lot of it's coming out of this morning's sermon, and then we'll get to the questions out of tonight's CRT talk and all that, but David, take it away. Yeah, thank you so much, and uh, thanks again, Brian, for everything. This was really awesome. I finished your book right before I came here, so I'm just like, you're in my head right now, man. Like you're in my, you're my inner world. Uh, so I just had a few different questions, particularly to like the church context, and then I'm really excited to get into these as well. Uh, so number one, and these are paragraphs, man. So you got to listen carefully, you know. Uh, as an ethnic or cultural minority in a majority culture church. So it doesn't mean that black people or Asian people are the minorities in the global perspective, but we're in a majority culture, majority white church. Uh, whether you're a guest speaker, but especially as a congregant or a part of the body, 
It often feels like damned if you do, damned if you don't. And what I mean by that is that you don't want to hide parts of yourself. You want to bring your full self to the table. But how do you bring your full self to the table without feeling like it's a performative gesture, uh, where you're being watched by a majority audience instead of participating in something together? And there's many examples of this. The one that most often comes up is like more expressive worship cultures, right? Like I want to be free. I want to dance. I want to raise my voice. I want to clap. I want to shout. When Jason and Tanika are here in the front row and I'm preaching, it's really good for my soul because they nod and Tanika makes noise, you know? Uh, and so I feel like I'm participating in something with her, but uh, instead of just performing for an audience. And so, um, whether it's call and response, whatever, I'm sure you even have more examples. Can you maybe shine some light on that experience for the minority person in the room, like that encouragement or what it looks like to bring your full self to the table? And then how can a room, because I don't want to hinder anybody else's experience or like uh, if somebody worships a little bit differently than me, I want to honor that as well. But if a majority culture like room is different than what I'm used to, how can they maybe steward an environment that is more inclusive for everyone? If that makes sense? Yeah. Um, so I, I, think, I think everything for me begins with calling. Um, I think you have to take what being a part of a local assembly looks like very, very seriously. And, and there has to be a sense of God's called me to this specific theologians call it ecclesia. So for me, calling just trumps everything, right? Like even, no surprise, my wife and I, we go through bumpy, turbulent seasons in marriage and, you know, we're coming up again on 24 years and there's this, there's seasons where it's been like, hey, we exchange vows. This is a covenant and we're going to figure this out. <laughs> Even though we don't feel like it right now, we're gonna, I'm not saying that the church kind of has an equal status relationship, but I just find too many people, um, th they'll just, they'll think nothing of joining a church and then the pastor says one thing I don't like, I'll send the email, I'm out. Yeah. Or one person does something to me that offends me. I think that's another thing to talk about. Uh, we are... I mean, I'm controversial tonight, so let me just continue the theme. We're too easily offended. Um, it's almost impossible to offend a humble person. Because humble people don't go around holding on to rights. Um, and so I just, there is a, there is just a fragility to the modern culture that's really concerning. Um, I think a part of that is social media, which I'm not anti-social media, but what social media does is, man, if I don't like you, or you say something I don't like, praise God for the block button or the mute button, and then I can just kind of construct my own echo chamber where I wake up one day and everybody is telling me how great I am all the time. So the one little instance of pushback, now I want to go cancel culture. So I think that's just a long-winded way to say everything for me just begins with calling, right? And look, I'm, I'm, I'm at a 12,000-person church in the South that's 85% white, and it's Southern white, right? Um, but I know I'm called there. <laughs> I'm called there. I'm, I'm called there. Um, so here's the other thing. Um, 
Corey Edwards, sociologist, says, so now, now we're talking about creating a culture. She says, multi-ethnic, golly, this is disturbing, but it's true. She says, multi-ethnic churches only grow in diversity according to the comfort of white people. Then she says, in a multi-ethnic church, white people give permission for what's acceptable. So let me show you how this plays out. Because I see it, I've seen it all the time. I'll get finished preaching, and I've had a black woman, black women say to me, black men say to me, oh, pastor, that was so good, I almost shouted. And it's funny at first, and then you think about it, it's really sad. What are they saying? I've looked around, and I got the memo. That's not what they do here. Now, did the pastor get up and say, that's not what we do here? No. So here's what I want my white brothers and sisters to know, because you don't know this. So this isn't me guilting or shaming you you carry a lot more cultural power than what you realize. And you set an environment for what's acceptable and what's not. Now, on the flip side, you gotta be comfortable in your own skin. And if I wanna lift my hands in worship, if I wanna take off running and do a couple laps, and this is a nice little building, you do some laps. <laughs> Please, please do this. Please do this. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> no, that's a really, that's a very pastoral answer. I appreciate that. Um, and I love this idea of calling, right? Even in your book, you describe yourself as a, a missionary, a missionary to, to white church, white, white evangelical culture, uh, which comes with its own sacrifices and burdens, but you can be anywhere when you know that's where you're supposed to be, right? And so I appreciate that. <clears throat> so for people in these settings, it's like, I didn't just end up here, but like, is this where the Lord is, is leading me and calling me? Um, and then act accordingly, you know? Uh, okay, so the second question is kind of like two parts. Uh, near the end of Insider Outsider, you point to the requirement of our Christ-like willingness to, quote, go again with those who have hurt us, uh, the same way Hosea does with Gomer, even after she's cheated on him. In Hosea chapter 3, for minorities in majority culture spaces, this often looks like forgiving and continuing to covenant with white evangelicals and local churches, even after we've been hurt by them. Now, while Park Hill doesn't have a ton of people of color, a lot of the people of color at Park Hill have experienced this type of hurt by other churches, and this is their going again. And so this is kind of the first part, and then I'll move on, but what advice do you have toward those folks who are sort of leaning in again, right? There's people, even in RBC, who came here after 2020 hurt, right, and found a home here, even though it might be different than what they're accustomed to. Um, I wouldn't describe myself as a person who has church hurt by the grace of God, but the closest I got was 2016. You know, I feel like I dodged a lot of bullets because of the relationships that I had with my white brothers and sisters. We were able to work through things, um, but not everybody had that. And so Park Hill is, even by virtue of what we're doing here, trying to create a conducive environment for healing. Um, and so maybe if you could just speak to those who are leaning into that. Yeah, I just wrote a book on this. So I've got, um, th there's, there's some thoughts percolating in my mind, but let me start first with, um, 
Um, this whole idea of deconstructing in minority communities, I'm a little concerned. I understand it, but here's my concern. Um, sociologists call this stuff microaggressions, right? So person pats my head, white person pats my head, um, wants to feel my hair. That's not good, it's microaggression, get that. But now we got Christians deconstructing over microaggressions. And that's their first move. Their first move isn't Matthew 18. Their first move is one person touches my hair, all white people are therefore I'm out. Here's what I always wanna to say to them. Can we talk about your grandmother for a minute? Your grandmother marched in the streets of Birmingham and Selma. She met in church knowing that in a few moments she was going to be attacked by German shepherds, have thunderous streams of water, fire hydrants turned on her, and she would be thrown in jail, and she came back to church the next Sunday. And let me get this straight, you're leaving because somebody didn't speak to you? or patted your hair, I think we gotta toughen up a little bit. Related to that is, there's a sociological construct called the blackness that whiteness created. And what that sociological construct says is that my identity as a black person or an Asian person, you just kind of fill in the blank, is in direct relationship to my distance or closeness to whiteness. So the more white I sound in my speech, the less black I am, right? The irony of that is I'm empowering my white siblings to shape my identity. And the irony of deconstructing is I'm giving, I'm giving white people a power over my faith. I'm not even talking Jesus yet. I just, I don't give people that power. Um, and so I think you have to be comfortable in who you are. Now, I, I just wrote a whole book on the book of Philemon because I've been very curious because Philemon ticked me off for years. So I'm a big believer that I write to know what I think about a subject. So I wrote a whole book about Philemon because um, my problem with Philemon, I think it's most people's problem, when Paul tells Philemon to take Onesimus back no longer as a slave, that's a very disturbing uh, instruction. And the reason why I get disturbed, the reason why I think most people get disturbed is because we look at, we look at this book through an activist lens where Paul looks at it through a reconciliation lens. The problem with the body of Christ in this space is we have far too many activists and not enough reconcilers. Just, just give me a moment to work this out. So I just wrote a book on this. We need activists. We need activists. Um, praise God for activists. But the problem with activists is activists are issue-driven. They're concerned with the what. Reconcilers are people-driven we're concerned with the how. 
So the problem with so many minorities when they talk about reparations, sometimes I go, it sounds like you want their stuff more than you want them. The whole point of restitution in the Bible is to deal with the injustice so that we can have relationship. Now, here's the answer to your question. I'll finish here. Reconciliation, according to the book of Philemon, you, you, you have to have three things. If you don't have these three things, you have to leave your church. These three things are represented in the three major characters of Philemon. Um, number one, there has to be truth. You can't have a relationship with a person who won't walk in truth. That's Paul. Hey, Philemon, take him back. You owe me your own life. Hey, Onesimus, you have to go back. There has to be grace. There has to be grace. Onesimus goes back, Philemon takes him back. He, he gives him grace. But there also has to be repentance. Onesimus has to walk the 80 miles from Rome back to Colossae. So the issue is not when people fail you in church, they will. But if you have a person who fails you, but they re refuse to repent, we have a word for that. It's called abuse. So you do Matthew 18, but if you're in a situation where nobody's advocating for you and people are not repenting, find another church. It's plain and simple. No, that's, uh, that's really good. And that kind of leads into the second part of the, first of all, I'm excited to read that book. Um, I asked him earlier, I was like, oh, I read your book. He said, which one? I was like, flex. So you kind of answered part of this, right, about the abuse, uh, abusive church. And so it's like, I'll just read it and then let you, you go from there. But so I'm thankful for a church like Park Hill. I also know that since 2016 and 2020, more white evangelical churches than ever have chosen to further entrench themselves in white evangelicalism, which you, you separate between just being a white Christian or a white evangelical. There's this, this uh, ideology. And to be honest, some have even gone into Christian nationalism, right? And so me and Evan talk about this and the staff. It's like the future of the church. It's like there's feels like there's Christian nationalism on one side, socially like, or theologically progressive on the other side, and then churches who are going to kind of get it from both sides, trying to figure out how to uh, practice well the vertical and the horizontal, to use your language. Uh, and Park Hill is trying to be one of those churches. And so while we're returning and going again, uh, while those things are good and godly, it is at times necessary to worship elsewhere, as you said, rather than to submit oneself to a perpetual process of revictimization and a purely one-sided effort at transformation. Uh, you know, I was thinking this as you talked, Hosea had to get back with Gomer, but God would not tell Gomer to get back with her pimp. You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't have said, you now go with this guy who's been abusing you. With that said, multi-ethnic does not simply mean a white church becoming more ethnically diverse although that is often what is applied, implied in the, under the surface in these conversations. So while some of us are missionally called to be the minority in majority culture spaces, and that is a good and godly calling, um, not all of us are, right? And so you have this chapter in your book called Minority Owned. How does one know when it is time to create what you call a quote, multi-ethnicity owned by minorities? 
And how do you get beloved white brothers and sisters on board with the giving up of at most power and at least comfort to make that transition? And this doesn't just mean leaving a church. It could mean a church leadership team that wants to get radically transformed and in inviting uh, people of color into power in a new way. Um, or it could be congregants who feel like and not nobody here necessarily, but like feel like I want to be and submit myself under a church that is led by somebody who's ethnically different than me. I feel called to like learn and grow for a season there. So that's two separate questions, but like how would you coach that? When do you know when it's that time? What advice would you give a leadership team of a church that's trying to do something radical and different? How they would prepare their body? Um, and how do you prepare just the average congregant to like, hey, I want this, I, I need to hear some, I need to listen to some different voices and be under some different kind of leadership. Well, yeah, I, 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 think, I think the answer is um, pretty simplistic. I, I tried to say it this morning, mission drives all of that. So if I'm in a, if I'm in a geographical location where there is a um, high demographic, let's say, of, uh, of Mexicans, I think faithful stewardship of my church in that geographical locale, I must have, in this case, Mexican leadership at the highest levels of church. Obviously, we're talking well-qualified people. Um, we do no one any good just putting warm bodies up there who can't do the job. We get all that. What made what made uh, Jackie Robinson work wasn't just because he was the right cultural fit. He could actually hit the ball, right? And he could actually field it. So um, we're not talking tokenism. We're not talking any of that stuff. But mission drives all this. So That's beautiful. So yeah, I think that that's is, all I have for now. No, that, you have a third question that I want to get you to. But the, a new question just hit the thing. And it was upvoted very quickly. And I think the pastoral force of putting this question up front and, and talking about it right now is just that we all can see it. The top question at the list. So how might Park Hill, <laughs> it's that top one, right there at the top, the top one. How might Park Hill be more hospitable when people of color attend without making them feel objectified? Multiple black friends opt out of this church because of its white majority. That is a powerful thing to see, to consider, and to be aware of, be mindful of as a majority white church. Um, and I would love to hear more broadly, pastorally, how you would speak to that question. Um, I know you don't know how Park Hill works itself, but um, to this dynamic, what would you say? I know I sound like a broken record, but mission drives everything. Right? So if I take 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, where Paul says, I've become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. Paul has just a whatever it takes mentality to reach everyone. So what, what does within five square miles of this location look like? You guys do your homework and does this room reflect that? Right. And uh, I, th I think that's just what drives it. Um, we're having some very hard conversations uh, at our church, necessary conversations. Again, you know, we're, we're this monstrosity. We've got 14 campuses. And um, I told the senior leadership 
I says, I'm noticing something about our new campuses. I said, I think we have a Whole Foods approach. <laughs> you don't find Whole Foods in Compton. And so I think we've kind of figured out our desired demographic. And we're Nordstrom's, we're Whole Foods, right? And we got to call that stuff out. And I think a gospel heart, you want to reach everybody. Um, and so that's my beginning point. And out of that, if I got to shift music, I mean, all that other stuff, I just hold loosely. Because I want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ and, and, and that whole thing. You, you know, we've gotten church planting wrong for the most part in the United States. I, talk, I tell this all the time to young church planters. The way we do church planting is we start a service hoping it turns into a church of which we'll make disciples and we hope to engage the community. It's the exact opposite in the Bible. Paul engages the community, makes disciples, and then a church happens. But he starts with the community. Like, who's there? And then that dictates everything. So, yeah. You had a third question. That's no, so good. That's extremely relevant to this. I feel like you kind of answered it, yeah, honestly. Um, it was about the barrier of geography and proximity. Um, and what I'm hearing from you is that, like, do your homework <laughs> to love and reach the people who are in your community, like within the, the place, uh, the geographic location, and lay down every non-essential gospel issue in order to reach the lost in your city. So maybe then what I'll ask before we jump into these uh, just because I love this metaphor in your book of um, ethnic theological accent. It's just a, he's a poet too. Like you guys think I'm a good talker, but read his book. Um, but this idea of ethnic theological accent and so maybe just quickly, three to five things. When you're bringing multi, multiple cultures together to form this kainos thing, this new thing, uh, there's gonna be various cultural expressions that need to happen. There's gonna be people speaking in different accents, but we're trying to speak the same language, the same language of the loving truth of the gospel. Um, what are those three to five gospel essentials that you're gonna say, all right, we're kind of bring disparate parts together to create something new, but here's what we have to be on the same page about as a leadership team or as a body so that we can then hold these other, what kind of worship So music. you're talking method, not message? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, when I'm talking to white people, um, the African-American culture is very um, kingly, very fatherly. We can, I don't know if you've ever seen black people talk to their kids. We don't discuss about whether or not you want to tie your shoes. <laughs> that's just not how we roll in black homes. We, we tell you to tie your shoes and that's it. Um, and it's just a cultural difference. Our white siblings, you will negotiate with two-year-old Heidi, and if you tie your shoes, I'll take you to Chick-fil-A. Like, that's just different. It's just different. It's just different. Um, and so I can be, I can really speak in directives, 
in an all-black setting. I can do it in a Latino setting as well. White people don't like to be talked to that way. So I've, I've got to do more of this than this. I've got to, I gave you a lot of humor this morning for a reason. I had to put you at bay, right? Now, I still got my message across. I'm, I'm learning how people receive things, right? And I wrote a whole book on that. It's called Right Color, Wrong Culture. And it's C2 leadership, which is really 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To those outside the law, those would be Gentiles. Paul was culturally flexible, able to float in and out of various contexts without losing who he was in the process. And you gotta be a student of the people who are in the room. Mm -hmm. That's great, that's, so for the last 15 minutes or so, we're gonna pivot onto the content for tonight. Uh, And this, this question sums up a lot of similar questions that came in about reparations, personally. Um, uh, there were s- several questions that came through like, you know, what if we don't have a hundred million bucks or Holiday Inn? How do we, like, just some ideas, please, kind of thing. Um, and so, so can you talk about just some ideas maybe that are actually being put forth in these conversations? Yeah, I appreciate the question. So here's what my wife and I do on a personal level. All of us in this room have a measure of privilege, by the way which I think is the unfair thing about white privilege, right? Um, All of us. I grew up in a two-parent home. My my folks will celebrate 52 years of marriage in May. That's a measure of privilege. It's a measure of privilege. Should I feel guilty about that? No. What what am I doing with it? Um, Corey and I, um, God's blessed us financially. Uh, in some ways, and so we have a real heart for people of color who are in nonprofit Christian organizations who have to raise their support. I feel compelled uh, to get on people of color's financial support team. It feels weird for me as a black man to say that. Call that whatever you want to call it, reparations or whatever. I would say that's something to consider. You probably know someone, maybe they work for Crew or Young Life. Or if you know a person of color raising support because of that monopoly illustration I gave you, the reason why minorities struggle disproportionately raising support is because of the legacy of injustice here. Well, that's an easy, that's an easy way for you to jump in and go, hey, I'll, I'll give you 25 bucks a month. I'll that's a way to help. It's very good. So um, the conversation could come to a stalemate when neither side is interested in nuance. I love, the, I love the line from tonight. Be very leery of those that are uh, not nuanced. <laughs> and, and so what about when they're your family? And uh, it's, hard not, it's hard to be leery of family when they're your family. So how, how do you introduce nuance when neither of the polarized sides are interested in what you did tonight brilliantly, by, by encouraging thinking Christianly and then threading the needle, what you know Christopher Watkin calls diagonalization in biblical critical theory, just instead of slicing it down the middle and saying there's a left and right, he draws a diagonal line across almost every issue and shows how the gospel helps us do this. 
from you know, race to sexuality to all of these ways we frame these conversations. We're tending to the binary and he goes, no, 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 diagonalize that. And the, the cross actually shows us how. But what, how do you show people how the cross shows us how to do that? Yeah, so um, probably one of the most transformative things uh, for my wife and I, and even our children, um, was just this beautiful relationship we got into with a, a lesbian couple. They were, um, they are um, two wonderful ladies who are married, and they have a kid. It's one of the ladies, um, it's her biological son. She had been with five different men. Those, all of them, had beaten her, and after the fifth one, she goes, "I'm just out." Um, and so she ends up in this lesbian relationship. And um, the punchline is. Both of them are followers of Jesus Christ now. I'd led their son to faith in Christ the, the whole night. I bet you it was a year and a half until we actually had the ideological conversation. Everything before that was just lots of good wine steak. I'm not in a Southern Baptist church, am I? Can I say? Um, good food. And literally, it, it wasn't until like maybe six to nine months in when they finally asked me what I did for a living, and it threw them. Because again, we entered this, we, we entered this through the relational door, not the ideological door, and they didn't know what to do with me. They really didn't because, you know, they'd invite me over to parties at their house. And uh, just from the eye test, our family was the only straight one in the room. And God bless that youngest son of mine. He can't whisper. One time he's like, are you uncomfortable, dad? <laughs> and I'm like, bro, you need to shut up right now. Um, but I think it's the same way with these race conversations. I think sometimes you just have to go. Uh, let's not talk about this right now. Let's just hang out and enjoy each other's company. Come on. And then we can get to it later on. Um, I, I even, after, after we started having some of those ideological conversations, I actually had to stop them. Y yeah, I, I, I want to know that part of who you are, but I feel like we're, that's dominating the conversation. So I think sometimes we just got to let it breathe. Everything's not about this. It is an important piece, but especially when we're hitting these things, because you make assumptions about me, I make assumptions about you, um, and some of the best things we can do is get to know each other beyond the assumptions, and then we can revisit this. My goodness, that, that my friends, is called pastoral care. What, that's, that's so good. I was very enriched by that. Um, can you, I, this, is, this is a question, this is something that comes up in conversation. Can you just riff on cultural appropriation? So um, what's your thoughts on that? So this is a question that 11 people wanted to know about. When, when does cultural appreciation become appropriation, i.e. white pastors adopting call and response style preaching if they weren't raised in that tradition? Yeah, we got to be careful here. I mean, so there's like various levels, right? Um, I, I have a pretty good sense. 
it's not good to show up in Halloween with blackface. Just, just throw that out there. Um, but on the other hand, again, I think, I, I think we've got this hypersensitive culture, right? Where, okay, there's, there's some clear lines, but then there's other times when a person is honestly making an attempt, right? And I think that's a discernment thing. Um, that at some point you may need to have a conversation and go, man, that just kind of comes across a little phony. What if it, so I think that's good, but let's just be careful and just believe the best in people when it's that kind of gray area kind of a thing. Um, because if you attack them, um, they're just going to shut down and not even try. So that's more of a feel thing. Like there's some clear boundaries that was out of line. But other times, I, sometimes I look at people, man, your heart just seems to be in the right place. M maybe we should have a conversation and I can coach you a little bit. By the way, in order to avoid this, um, me, th there's another pastor of the church, J.D. Greer, uh, and... JD never says anything from the pulpit about race without running it by me first. I think most of this stuff can be avoided if you just have a group of friends who are ethnically other and you can go, hey, I'm thinking about wearing dreadlocks for Halloween. Do you think that'd be a good look for me? And they'll tell you, no, that's not a good look for you. And that's the end of it, <laughs> right? Right? But we make assumptions, again, that's the key word. Mm. Um, just run stuff by people before you do it. Yeah. I think that's the better part of wisdom. Which, which assumes relationship. Yep. Relationship is, it seems to be a theme here. Authentic relationship with those that are other than you. Um, this is an interesting question. I, I don't know, how, how, how would you do, and how would I phrase this question pastorally? Do you, yeah, how do you pastorally encourage, you said 85% of your church are white people. Um, how, how do you encourage talking with, those parents talking with their children about race in America and how the gospel compels the church to be the multi-ethnic multi family of Jesus? And, and the, way, the way this question is framed is in terms of guilt. So how do you encourage families to do that in a way that doesn't, doesn't make them feel guilty in their discussion with their children, which is an, an interesting way to frame it, I think. Okay, so this is probably the most important thing I'd say during this Q&A time. Every single church, your church has this, every single church, when we have these conversations, there's three types of people. The ready, the reluctant, the resistant. You have to learn to think about, about this conversation in your church with those three categories. The ready, the reluctant, the resistant. Ready does not mean mature, by the way. Some of the most immature people when it comes to this conversation are ready people, right? They're ready to move at 100 miles an hour. They have no sensitivity to where people are in their development. They're more like a prophet, punch you in the mouth, hit you with truth, you're bleeding, and what you really need is a pastor. This area needs pastors, not so much prophets, right? Where you're, 
Paul tells the, Corinth, uh, t- tells the Colossians, I'm so glad you're preaching through this. He says, Colossians chapter one, round about verse 28, um, I labor to present everyone mature in Christ. Now think about this. The implication is immaturity. Paul says, my goal as a pastor is to present people mature, which means I assume immaturity. And one of the ways I assume immaturity, which helps me with my tone when I talk about this, this stuff, is I assume immaturity when it comes to race. Because we have all been formed in a certain way. So when I assume that, now I'm able to have a pastoral posture. And I want to take you on this journey from reluctant to redemptively ready. There's unregenerate ready, right? Then there's reluctant. That's the bulk of our people in North Carolina. Bulk of our people, they're not gonna sign up for the race class. They're not gonna come to this event. It's the bulk of our people. So we have to trap them. And the way that we trap them is we infiltrate systems they're already engaged in. For us, that's small groups. So they have no idea what's coming. They're about to be hit with a multi-week small group thing through John chapter 4. By the way, I always recommend, if you're going to teach on race for the first time, do John 4. It's a relational conversation that's so easy to walk through on these things. And then there's the resistant. Most, most churches, especially younger churches like yours, I'd say the, the bulk of the people are low-grade ready to reluctant. You'll probably have 10% resistant, but it'll be a very loud 10%. And you cannot let resistant people hijack the conversation or the spirit of God. Um, and so you just keep it moving. You'll lose people, but we call that pruning. Just keep it moving. Yes, so just a couple more, a couple more. We have about five minutes in this. So what is the role of people who are not black or white in this conversation? Uh, this person speaks in the first person. I, f- I feel like I've learned a lot, but hard to know what my actionables are. Yeah, there's a great book called The Loneliest Americans. It's written by a Korean writer. I think his last name is Kang, K-A-N-G. He's a, um, wrote for the New York Times, um, The Loneliest Americans. I, I think everybody should read that book. Um, it's, it's about the Asian experience. And one of the things that was really helpful, I, I, I bought 100 copies and gave them to uh, 100 uh, Asians at our church. I, I, I get together with... Um, there's probably 400 Asians at our church. So I, I bought more than 100 copies, but we get together once a quarter. It's potluck. Food is amazing. Um, and I just listen. I just listen. And um, so what, we read the book together, and I just tossed out questions. And one of the things he talks about is um, the black-white binary in America. And how for many Asians, and I want to even be careful reading his book. I know he doesn't speak on behalf of all Asians. But what he gave me a flavor for was for many Asians, there is this gravitational pull in one direction or another for the black-white binary. Um, That was really, really helpful. 
And it's a good conversation. It's a, it's a good piece that informs me, that encourages me to, to make sure I continue to layer this conversation. Uh, and it's, it's really important. And to give people the freedom. See, not only are not all people within an ethnicity the same, but not all ethnicities approach this the same. Black, when black folk get ticked off, we're going to go out in the street, we're going to tear stuff up. Um, I don't see a lot of our Indians doing that. I'm not talking Native Americans. Um, I don't see, I have caught glimpses of, but I haven't seen a lot of that coming from the Asian community. So we have to even be careful. People groups are different about this. And the myth of the model minority, which is another good book, um, our, our Asian brothers and sisters, for the most part, have been raised with this deep success drive. I got an Asian friend of mine who says the, the American ethic of parenting is happiness. You just want your kids to be happy. The Asian ethic is success. We just want our kids to be successful. And so how Asians are taught is don't rock the boat. Just blend in. Get in, get out. Right? We have to keep these things in, in mind and just talk, have spaces for discussion and deep listening. That's helping me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's a fair critique and question. Yeah. More relationship, you guys. That's powerful. And I, I think this is a great final one. Um, just to wrap up, I, uh, this person, is, their name is Thankful, they said. They're thankful. So thank you, Brian Loritz. Thank you for being here. Thank you for pouring yourself out all stinking day. Three gatherings in the morning and then three hours in the evening. And this person says, I am really inspired but feeling overwhelmed. Um, what's a first step I can take toward like maybe it's, maybe it's learning more or being generous or getting involved in something? Uh, what's like a what now easy next stepping stone? Great question. Um, this is a 400-year problem in the making. You ain't going to change it. You're not called to change it. Um, so the friend of mine is the grandson of the founder of Holiday Inn. I'll just end with this. He, um, you know, our first dinner together, I'm like, man, just how did you end up here? And... You know, he's over my house, him and his wife. <clears throat> he says, well, I, I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I, I went to, I think he went to uh, University of Virginia for undergrad. Then he went to Dartmouth for grad school. And then he goes, I, I always knew I was going to come back to Memphis and take over the business, but I just had to know I could make it on my own. So I, I, he said, I moved to Raleigh. He said, and then I started to think about my life and that my life is a very privileged, insulated life. Um, and so he said, man, it's the craziest thing. He says, I just felt like in order to know minorities, I had to become a minority. So he says, I, I rolled, he said, I enrolled in an HBCU. <laughs> he said, I just went to Shaw Divinity. And he says, I start taking classes and I start reading James Cone. And he said, my world is rocked. 
And a whole new world opened up to me. And then he goes, I come back, me and my wife. He goes, and my mother, her dream in life was that her and all of her kids would sit on the same row in their little Presbyterian church. And he said, I couldn't do that. So he ends up at our church, a little multi-ethnic church. And he said, oh, he said, in Raleigh, I started praying, God, would you give me some minority friends? And that's what actually led him going to the minority environment. So he gets to our church. We strike up a, a friendship. He's coming over the house. Then he invites me to play golf at this country club that I can't join. And so we start having a conversation. I'm like, you know, black people can't join here. I'm like, bro, what are you thinking? He's like, oh. So he comes back to me two months later and he goes, I got you a membership. <laughs> I didn't ask you for a membership, dude. I told you you couldn't be here. Um, I turned it down and it's a long story. But <laughs> the irony, he then takes me duck hunting. I talk about black people and outdoors. <laughs> I go duck hunting. Now he has a duck hunting club and they eat filet mignon the night before and they have a guide and it's totally different. But um, his whole journey was just seeing where he's at, going, I'm not satisfied. I'm reading about Jesus Christ. This is one of the things he said, Jesus Christ, the incarnation, he comes as a Jew, he comes as a minority. I need to immerse myself in a minority context. I need to read what they're reading. I'm challenging him. He's challenging me. It begins with relationship. Yeah. So that's the thing I would say is assess where you're at, pray, and watch God work. Brian, thank you. You guys, just can we thank him? such a gift so much wisdom and um just want to let you know you guys well done coming out to the house of learning we're learning the mind of christ as best we can by the power of the spirit and this one uh great turnout um next month's house of learning um we're pivoting to the topic next next month is all about how how god loves to bring the lonely into families. And so what we're focusing on is orphan care and adoption, fostering. We're hearing from, we're hearing from voices within our church who are adopted, pastors that, are, that were adopted, and, and then folks that are adopting, are fostering. And Arielle, pastor of kids, who also runs RFK, she'll be on the panel. Uh, Missy Bell. Miss, Missy Bell, who oversees Olive Crest, uh, all of it, it's, it's very, it's beautiful what Jesus is doing through our community um, toward the foster care system in San Diego, and we're going to talk about it next House of Learning. Hopefully you can come out to that. And you guys, let's pray. Can we just stretch out our hands and bless uh, Brian Loritz for coming and being present to us? Lord Jesus, this man 
We thank you for his presence in our church, his presence in Raleigh at a 12,000 member church, the entrustment ministry you've given him. We bless him, his wife, his kids. Would you continue to speak through him as your oracles of peacemaking? Bless many families through his family. Pour your spirit out on his ministry continually, God. Would you keep evil at bay when it rears its head at him? Bind the hand of the enemy from thwarting any plan that he in Christ puts his mind to accomplish for your glory in the world. Have your way through Brian. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, well done. Thanks for coming. And thank you for listening to this podcast. As I said in the intro of this whole recording, our hope as leaders is that this leads to all the right conversations in our church and in your community group and in your families, um, and that healing, deep healing can take place across ethnic lines uh, for the sake of the kingdom in our city through our church. So, um, yeah, as, as you heard at the end of the Q&A session, we are having another House of Learning in March. Every month of this year, we're going to do it. And in March, it's all about adoption and orphan care and how God is calling all of us into orphan care. Not all Christians are called to adopt, um, though many are, <laughs> but all Christians, every follower of Jesus is absolutely called to orphan care. And so I hope you register for the next House of Learning, which is March 26th, Sunday night. The link to register will be in the show notes of this podcast, or you can just email us to register or with any questions about anything, however we can serve you as the Park Hill Leadership Team. Email us at info at parkhillsd.church. So that wraps up February's House of Learning. May the Lord bless and keep you as you follow Jesus.